the New York Times columnist, Tom Friedman, writes about a time that he was traveling to France. He arrived at Charles de Gaulle Airport where he was looking for uh, a driver. His friend in Paris had provided a driver for him. As he was coming down an escalator, he saw the man holding a sign that said Tom Friedman on it. Assuming that was his, his driver, he, he walked toward him. The man was animatedly talking to himself, or at least that's what Tom Friedman thought until he got closer and could see that there was a Bluetooth device in his ear and he was clearly talking on the phone. He continued to talk as Friedman walked up to him, pointed to the sign and nodded his head. The driver nodded his head and gave him a follow me signal as they walked toward baggage claim. While they're walking towards baggage claim, the driver, the man uh, that his friend sent, is continuing to talk on the phone all the way, all the time, loudly and animatedly. Well, he finds his bag and then they walk to the car. Driver pops open the trunk, throws the bag in the back. Friedman gets in the back seat he notices when the driver gets in to drive, not only does he continue to talk on the phone, he also has another screen attached to his dashboard where he's watching a movie. So he's driving, talking on the phone, and watching a movie, and he continues to talk on the phone the entire trip. Well, Friedman decides to distract himself from being worried, and so he opens his laptop, and he starts working on a column that's due the next day. And at the same time, he finds his own earbuds puts those in, and plugs in a, a Stevie Nicks album that he'd been wanting to listen to for an hour. No one talks to each other. The driver's talking, watching a movie. Tom's working, listening. They get to the hotel, and Friedman realizes while they were driving along, they were doing six things at the same time. The driver was driving, talking, and watching. Friedman was working, listening, and writing, and not once during that hour did they talk to each other. He mentioned this to his friend, Linda Sloan, who studied this sort of thing, especially in our culture today. She says that we suffer from something she calls continuous partial attention. We are so accessible, we're inaccessible. Does this start to sound familiar to some of us? Does this sound familiar? Do we know the source of the problem? Is it, is it the technology? I mean, most of us probably like I do, carry a phone in your pocket or your purse. Maybe it's in your car, you left it in your car for church. Who knows? Is that the problem though? Is it the technology? Is it the internet? Is it all the screens that we're surrounded by? What exactly is the problem here? My friend Adam Hamilton might be able to help us during this Faith Kit sermon series, I've also been doing a series of podcasts with friends of mine in ministry from around the country. Last week, I interviewed Adam Hamilton, who's the senior pastor at the 20,000-member Church of the Resurrection in, in Kansas City. He's a brilliant preacher, an amazing thinker, and a, and a great writer. Well, Adam happened to be at his lake house on the Lake of the Ozarks when I did the interview with him, and we got to talking about today's text, the story of Martha and Mary, and how Martha seems to be distracted, and Mary is paying attention. We got to talking about that a little bit, and he said, let me tell you about something that happened earlier this week. He said, my granddaughter Stella came down to be with us for a few days. She's only eight years old. She's our only granddaughter. We love having her around. My wife, Lavon and I enjoy her so much. And one day, she and I had spent a long time playing a board game, doing some fun things. When I stopped in the middle of it, he said, pulled out my phone and began to check email. Said, Stella, I'm gonna go check my email. I'm gonna check on what's going on back at work. And did that for about 10 or 15 minutes until he realized, I have 
my eight-year-old granddaughter here with us at the lake. We could be out on the boat, on the, going out on the lake. We could be going for a walk in the woods. We could be doing a host of things, and I'm checking my emails, and I'm worried about work. And this is what he said on the podcast, put the stinking phone away. We know the problem, don't we? The technology is neutral. They're just machines. The problem, it's that person we see in the mirror. It's the one we look right at who looks back at us. That's where the problem is located. That's where the problem is seen. And here's part of the question. Is this something new? Did this just come along with the invention of the internet and, and the, the proliferation of phones and screens and all the rest? Or has it been around for a while? Has it been something we've had to face for a long time? After all, the story we heard today is a story of distraction from 2,000 years ago. One of my favorite writers is a man named John Ortberg. He wrote a book called The Life You've Always Wanted. Isn't that an intriguing title? The Life You've Always Wanted. In one section of the book, he talks about what he calls hurry sickness. He was meeting with a spiritual advisor, a spiritual director who was helping him deal with his ministry and some of the things that he was, he was facing in his own personal life. And he said, you must, the director, the spiritual director said to John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. We suffer, he says, in the church especially from hurry sickness. We fill our lives with busyness. We fill our lives with this and that and the other thing. And we overwhelm ourselves. We never turn the phone off. We never stop working. There doesn't seem like there's a day off for any of us ever in between any place. We're always constantly, constantly, constantly going. In fact, Ortberg even says that the danger for a church that gets caught up like this with busyness on top of everything else, meetings, 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 and more and more and more, is that we'll find ourselves not losing our faith. The danger isn't that we might lose our faith. The danger is that we might settle for a mediocre version of it. That we might settle for a mediocre version of it. Show me a church that is packed from beginning to end of the year with tons of ministries and programs and missions and more, never taking the time to contemplate, never taking the time to take a deep breath, never taking the time to reflect on who they are and where they may be going next. And I'll show you a church with a mediocre faith and one that is in danger, frankly, of dying. Which brings us to our story today, this fascinating story of Martha and Mary and the visit that they received from Jesus and we presume his disciples are along with him. Martha, uh, at first in the story, at first glance, doesn't come across too well. I mean, she criticizes Mary, her sister, and subtly, maybe not so subtly, Jesus in front of all the guests. Lord, don't you care that I'm doing all the work by myself? Tell my sister Mary to come in here and help me. Now, that's not something you want to do in front of your guests if you're having a dinner party. Don't, ins don't, don't insult one of your relatives and certainly don't pick on one of the guests. She doesn't look that great in this moment, but set that aside. Set that aside for now. 
Look at what she has done up until this moment. She's practicing the art of hospitality. She's made sure to prepare a meal for everyone who is there. She's ensuring not only that the meal will be served, but that they will be safe and comfortable in her home. In the ancient Near East, safety was a major part of healthcare. To be out in the wilderness, to even to be on the streets, as we saw in the story of the Good Samaritan last week, you are, you are in danger just traveling from Jericho to, to Jerusalem. She's ensuring the safety of her guests. She's bringing them into her home. She's doing all sorts of wonderful things to make sure that they are accepted and loved as they are. Is that beginning to sound familiar? Hospitality is a gift of the Spirit according to our faith. You can go all the way back to Genesis 18 in the story of, Ab- of Abraham welcoming three guests into his tent. After he's welcomed them, he discovers that it's the Lord. And he asks for a, a, a meal to be prepared. A, a, a beautiful, amazing meal is, is given in honor of these guests. And later he receives a blessing from the Lord. Skip on ahead to the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. And there's a note there from the author who says to his readers, says to the church, to people like us, welcome strangers in your home. For by so doing you may be welcoming angels unawares. Notice the mysticism of it. Don't get caught up in the literalness of those two stories. Notice the mystical, mysterious work of the Spirit. Angels may be there. It may be the Lord. It may be who knows who it is. But when you welcome another, when you welcome a stranger, when you do this as Jesus says to the least of these, your eyes, along with your home, will be opened. Your spirit will be enriched. Mary, Martha is simply practicing the gift of hospitality, of making her home open to Jesus and his friends. Did you know that we have a ministry here in our church called the Open Door Ministry? Do we have some, we have some of our Open Door Ministers here this morning looking to see if we have some of you greeter folks. There's a couple, thank you very much for the, for the work that you do. We, we found out in, in preparing this ministry and, and making sure that, that we have greeters at all the doors, sometimes even out in the parking lot, sometimes with umbrellas to help you find your way in so your hair doesn't get messed up in the rain. We've had those folks around now for a few years and it's an important part of what we do. Why? Well, it's because hospitality is a gift of the Spirit, number one. Number two, there's a practical reason. When someone parks their car at a church for the first time as a guest, they will decide within 10 minutes whether or not they're going to visit that church again. Think of what that means. Someone visits our church for the first time, parks out here in our parking lot, makes their way into the sanctuary, finds a seat within 10 minutes before there's any beautiful music before the sermon's delivered, before you hear anything, much of anything else, they've already decided, and much of that is on how hospitable you all are, on whether or not they feel like they've been received and welcomed into this sacred space. What Martha is doing is a beautiful and amazing thing. And Luke also is letting us see that Martha is a deacon in the church. There's a word in there for tasks that it comes from the Greek word diakonoi. Do you hear the root? The, the, the Greek root of our English word deacon? By the time Luke writes this story, by the time he shares his gospel, the church has already been established. And a, an important office in the church in the earliest days was the office of deacon. 
He's basically presenting Martha and by extension Mary as deacons, as leaders in the church. It's funny to think that that was true 2,000 years ago and still some of our church folks are having a hard time agreeing that women ought to be leaders in the church. It's time for everybody to catch up with everybody else. You can share that with your friends in other churches if they're still, still, still worried about that. Give them Tim Benzant's phone number and he'd be happy to talk to them about that. You see, this, this Martha is really a model in many ways for how we're called to, to behave. She's, she's in, in doing all this work and making all these preparations and doing all these things, she's not doing trivial things like, like fluffing the pillows or, or making sure all of the glasses, uh, the wine glasses have those little stem uh, charms. Have you seen those before? The little clips that clip on the stem of the wine, like one's a little dog and one's a little, a little cat and one's a little thimble and something else. It's just, it, I, please don't do that if I come to guest, as a visitor to your house. I can memorize a 20-minute sermon. I can't remember if I'm the, I'm the wine, if I'm the dog wine or the cat wine. I can't keep that clear. She's not doing trivial things like that. She's making sure her friends are welcomed. And it's Amy Jill Levine, the great New Testament scholar, who helped me see that in, the, in, this, in this moment, Jesus is not belittling Martha when he speaks to her and invites her to sit with Mary. Instead, he's helping her to prioritize, to be clear about what matters the most. It's an invitation to choose the finer thing. Now note this, last week we heard the story of the Good Samaritan. That story comes right before this story. They're back to back. The story of the Good Samaritan is this man who sees someone who's been beaten and left in a ditch. Notice what he does. He stops, he bandages the man's wounds, he carries him to a place where he can receive care. He pays the bill. He makes arrangements to pay for any future bills. And he's done all of this. It's faith in action. Now, if he'd chosen to reach in and pull out his pocket Bible and study his Bible for a little bit, to pray and contemplate, the man may die from his wounds. He chose the right thing. In the next story, Martha has done all of the work and now it's time to leave the preparations aside and to sit down for the moment of prayer with Mary. It's almost like Jesus is remembering the book of Ecclesiastes. Do you remember how it goes? There's a season for everything. A time to plant, a time to pluck up, a time to be born, a time to die. And we might add a time to prepare the meal and a time to sit down and pray. Jesus isn't presenting this as an either-or kind of discussion. It's a both-and. Both matter. Quietly, carefully, considering who we are and how we are while listening for the voice of God is an important part of our lives while we also want to put faith into action. I'll tell you this. It's much easier to preach this sermon than it is to practice it. Do you remember the shared trauma that we experienced not just in the United States but around the world in March of 2020? 
the virus had already gone around the world. We were just starting to figure it out in, in, in the month of March. And all of a sudden, simple things like going to the grocery store were traumatic events. I remember the first time I went with Julie to go shopping, I put uh, those latex gloves on my hands. I wore a mask over my face. I was afraid to talk to anyone, to breathe too deeply, to touch anything unnecessarily. I was, we were afraid those days that the virus could be anywhere on anything. That just shopping was a tense tense experience. And then coming home, did you do this too? We wiped down all the frozen peas. We wiped down all the, the bananas and the apples and the oranges and, and the containers for the cereal. I mean, I, the, my, my, my oatmeal was soggy on the outside before I ever put it in a bowl. We wiped down everything. Even a, a takeout meal from El Vaquero was a moment of stress while we wiped down every little nook and cranny of those packages holding our tacos and our rice. It was a stressful time. You know what I did then? I got busier. I added more and more onto my calendar. I seemed to have 12 Zoom meetings every single day. I was recording this and recording that and recording something else and writing this and working on this. I just, got over, I just, I just covered up the trauma with more and more busyness. And in July, I hit the wall. It was like the Spirit of God just pushed me down in my chair. And I heard three words. Stop. Look. What's the third one? Listen. You learn those instructions in kindergarten. Sometimes the simplest lessons we need are right there before us. Stop. Look. Listen. Jesus isn't criticizing Martha for being so busy, for the work that she's done. It's beautiful work. He's just letting her know, Martha, the time to take a deep breath, to look and listen has come. It's an invitation from Jesus to all of us to savor the sacred to find the mystery in the mundane, to pay attention to the beauty of God's world, to recognize that we might already be surrounded by the very Spirit of God. Maybe you'll see it in the smile of a friend. Perhaps it'll be in the song, a sound of a bird singing from a tree. I, I don't know if you've noticed this this week in your neighborhood, but in mine, I've been up early a couple of times walking the dog at 6 a.m. It's like there's just this cacophony of sound from all of the birds singing to one another. This is an invitation to savor our lives, to look around, to stop, look, and listen and discover, as someone has said, that we may see that heaven surrounds us. Amen.